is a second loneliness, you could call it that way. And maybe it is precisely the fact that you have found a home and feel deeply loved, there is still a hole when you have found a home. Pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together. We have to understand that we're not each other's enemy. We have to say, let's move forward. It can feel daunting to not be perfect when you've got all these like perfect people. People aren't perfect, no one's perfect. Dave said to me yesterday, Dave Andrews said to me yesterday, he said, God, your story is really depressing. <laughs> and um, look, I just want to encourage you to hang in there. I'm going to try and enliven a little bit at the end. There's some tough times, but there's some good times. And I wouldn't change any of it. I love it. I love what I've been through. And it took a wee while getting here, but I pray that you'll just hang in there long enough with me to uh, get to the good stuff. Our story, oh, I'm going to read a couple of scriptures first. First one is in John chapter 8. If you abide in my word and you're truly my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, hardships often prepare ordinary people for extraordinary destiny. Now, I'm not an extraordinary person or don't have a particularly extraordinary destiny, but I have a destiny that God's ordained and I realize that my happy place is when I'm in the place that he wants me to be. And then the last one is Isaiah 46, 9. It says, um, I'm God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. So God's showing us, this is a really good way to, to, to find God in a situation. He says, if you want to know if I'm there, then I declare the end from the beginning, meaning I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And if it comes to pass exactly as I said, you know it's me. So we know from that that God is the only one outside of time, seeing eternity, seeing what is happening. And if he comes and just touches us in a small way, if it is prophetic and accurate, we know it's God. So that's very important to me. Now this story starts in Auckland in 1999 where we used to live. I'm in, we're in Christchurch now. We built a home. Um, we imported a house from Australia, brand new house. We put it together and we're living in Auckland. And now <clears throat> I had a two-year-old son and he was playing with his big brother who was about 10 at the time, Isaac. And uh, they were mucking around one of the doors and somehow Seth's thumb got crushed in the back edge of the door. So the door closed and it was a big fulcrum and it jammed his thumb vertically and it crushed his knuckle and bent his nail back and it was an absolute mess. It was just, it's hard to describe how bad it was. I saw the little boy screaming and I picked him up my arms and I had no idea what I was going to be able to do but I knew I had to take him to the hospital of course. I picked him up and Stephanie was there and, and my eldest son Josiah was there and I just said, God, there's nothing I can do. I just give this to you to deal with. And we watched his thumb reform in front of our eyes. It just grew back and swelled up, and it was perfect. He just looked at it quite surprised and ran away and played. I thought about this at length over the next couple of weeks. And anyway, I was an air traffic controller, and I used to drive about 25, 30 minutes to work. Um, this one morning, a couple of weeks later, I was driving to work thinking about what happened when I gave it to God. He came and sorted it out. So as I was driving along, I stopped my car, pulled over to the side of the road at, on Chapel Road, and I said, God, I give you my wife, I give you my children, I give you my home, I give you my job, I give you my money, and I give you my theology. Carried on to work. 
six months later, we got shifted to Christchurch. The Airways Corporation, who I work for, <coughs> very smart people, they decided that it would be really good to get all of the radar centres located in one place because um, we were doing radar in Auckland, Ahakia, Wellington and Christchurch. So they moved us all into one location. I thought Christchurch would be ideal because they don't have any earthquakes or floods or anything. So um, we ended up in Christchurch um, back there, d still controlling up this up here actually. Uh, I was still doing all the airspace north of um, Rotorua. And uh, things, you know, we settled in life. We bought a little lifestyle block and we started living just as, as people do and just very ordinary people. And then one night, about after being there for, I think it was about just under, about 15 months, I'm just going into bed one night and this incredible anointing came over me and I, I knew it was God. I found out after it was, it was God for the very reason I said God telling me in from the beginning. This anointing came on me and it wasn't an audible voice. It was just like a knowledge was planted in my head. The power's going to go off. You need to set your watch alarm or you'll be late for work because I was getting up at five o'clock to get head off to work for the early shift. So I thought, oh, okay, that's unusual. So I set my watch alarm and, and sure enough, woke up to my watch beeping and the clock was off, the power had gone off just as God had said. I thought it was amazing. I didn't wake anybody, I didn't wake Steph, I just headed off to work. And then I came home and I think I probably told her on the phone during the day and then I came home and we talked all about it. God had for some reason spoken to me and, and shown me something outside of time. I wasn't sure why, but it had happened. Then two weeks later, I was on exactly the same shift, going to bed early, um, because I was getting up early and I was just about to get into bed and the same voice, the same knowledge came back and it said to me, you're about to go through the biggest trial of your life. It was a bit scary because last time it had been 100% correct and here I'm getting, you're going to go through a trial. Nobody wants to go through a trial, but um, this voice told me. Shortly after that, within, within about a week and a half, things started. We got a, a little lifestyle block and we had about an, eight, an acre in potatoes. Um, we were selling things at our gate, and I just did it for something to do, bought an old rotary hoe and started um, growing some potatoes as a, just something to do and supply the family and friends and what have you. So I went out and I thought I'd dig up a, a bunch of potatoes. So I did that for an hour, hour and a half, something like that. And then went inside, had tea, went off to work the next day. And I was sitting on radar the next day, and it was really busy. I'd been on position for just about two hours, which is the full length you can do really intent, head down and concentrating, when all of a sudden my sight, my vision just started to narrow. It got dark at the sides, it got narrower and narrower and narrower until it just, I, I just couldn't see anything. So I, I sat up, I wheeled back, and it was really busy, planes everywhere, and I said, you've got to take over, I'm not well. So the person next to me slot, slotted straight in, they're keeping it, we, it's done like that on purpose. Slotted straight in and took over, and I sat for a minute and as I sat up and just waited my vision came back to me and I went over to the supervisor and said look I've got to go and see a doctor I'm not feeling well didn't want to tell him the truth because as a controller if you lose your medical you lose your job and I thought that could be something serious I don't know unbeknown to me that was the last time I ever controlled an airplane so anyway I head off to the doctor and she said look what's happened is you just pinched a nerve in your neck and it's affecting your vision because of the work on the potatoes so so she prescribed um, some anti-inflammatories and said you need to take a couple of weeks off work because it was, it was actually quite serious, the, the swelling. So um, I did. At the time, my wife Steph was pregnant and due to have the baby and I couldn't actually get any time off work. So it was actually, I thought it was quite miraculous because now I'm off work for two days and she goes into labour the next day. So I, I'm now, you know, Stephanie goes into labour and that wasn't good. 
Now we've had this. This was our seventh child, so we've been through this before. I'm an old hat. I'm happy to stop and have a, you know, burger on the way to the hospital because everything's going to be fine, you know. But it wasn't fine. Um, things weren't going well. In fact, the baby was back to front, not upside down, but back to front, and and it breaks the neck of the baby and and severely damages the, the mother. When this is really dangerous, it, to the point that the doctors, they when they realised it, they they pushed an alarm and the room was swamped with medical people. You know, that all these specialists and everything came running into the room. And, and they were swearing and, and they were panicking. I could see it in, in the way they were acting. Um, I'm not going to go into detail, so I've got a book of, outside if you want to read the book, um, but I'll talk about that a little bit later on um, where I go into more details. But the baby was born and thankfully everything worked out fine. She didn't break her neck and everything went well. Then two, le- two weeks later, I'm due to go back to work. So I've had my two weeks off with a swollen neck. I'm due to go back to work the next day, and I get out of bed, and I'm just levelled on the floor in absolute pain. Um, I was in excruciating pain. Has anybody had a kidney stone? Any men especially? Um, I had a kidney stone, and you'll know what it's like. It's not nice. They say it's one of the most painful things a man can experience. It's not. I'll tell you why in a minute. But I I had the, the... this immense pain that landed me on the floor. So they rushed me into the doctor, then into the hospital, and I spent five days on morphine and pethidine, just easing the pain, because this kidney stone had got stuck in my ureter. That's the tube between your kidney and your bladder. So I'm in and out of hospital. So then I come home, and I was in and out, on and off over the next few weeks. Steph's at home at this time, but then she started feeling ill, and she got sicker and sicker. So we took her down to the doctor, and it turns out she'd got an infection because of some of the complications of the birth, so um, we go down to the doctor and said, no, you've got to go back to hospital. And st- hospital. And Steph said, no, no, I'm not going back to hospital. So she's very stubborn. You know what women are like, eh? And there's, so she wouldn't go back to hospital. So they said, right, the only way you're staying home is if you come in three times a day and we'll inject you with antibiotics. They weren't just going to give us a pill. So she, we took her in, but it didn't work. She got sicker and sicker. So it ended up we had to readmit her to hospital the next day, and she stayed in there for about, I don't know, four or five days or something. I don't know what it was, but it was a long time. Well, anyway... She gets out eventually, and we go out to this Bible study, and my cousin said to me, Garth, I've got a scripture for you, and he reads this scripture to me. Then my uncle interrupts, and he says, oh, I've got a scripture for you too. So I forgot the first one, which was really important. So anyway, as we'll find out a bit later on. So anyway, um, we get back home, living life pretty normally. It's five weeks now since uh, the baby's born, so six weeks, seven weeks since I got the first, um, you know, neck problems. And... uh, I get out of bed, go down to my, my office, and the next one I hear this sort of croaky, screechy sort of noise. Oh, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And I go back, running back into the room, and Stephanie had this great big swelling on her neck. And I'm talking massive. It was a huge big thing. Well, I had no idea what it was, so I bundled her up, and we took her down to the doctor. Um, and the doctor said, you need to get her into the hospital for a scan straight away. So we uh, rung the midwife and had to cancel an appointment we had for the six-week checkup of our baby, she was a wee bit upset because she was, she's slightly. I, I tell people she was an older midwife. I've, I've discovered she's younger than I am now when this is going on, so <laughs> I can't relate to that. But never mind. So, so anyway, we. She's disappointed, but she arranges to come and see Steph the next week and a week later. That saved my life, as we'll find out. So we get her in, and it turns out because of the infection a blood vessel in her thyroid had weakened and it burst, so it was a great big swelling just filled with blood. And the doctor said, look, it'll go down after a month or so. So that was trial number five. Then 
I'm not allowed to work now because I've got this kidney stone stuck. I haven't worked for five weeks. They said they pulled my medical because you can't control the aeroplanes if you're going to get a bout of renal colic. You know, the pain, you end up doubled on the floor. And there's occasions when you're on position yourself, solo, controlling aeroplanes that might be passing and descending and climbing through each other. So you can't do it. So they pulled my medical and said, no, we will not let you have your medical back until you've got medical proof, i.e. x-ray, that the kidney stone is gone. So I go on a private list and a public list waiting to get this kidney stone out. And then I get a ring from the hospital and they say, look, come in, 7 o'clock the next morning, we'll whip it out for you. So I go into the hospital at 7 o'clock the next morning. It's absolute chaos. It was so busy. They put me in the TV room and they're in there prepping me for this operation. This old guy comes. He says, I want to watch the TV. And he was moaning because they kicked him out and wouldn't let him watch the TV because that was now my room. So they operated on me and then forgot all about me. And, and look, this is true and honest. They... They wheeled me back into a room, and then they rung Steph and said, he's had the operation, you can pick him up. Now, they told me I'd be in for two days, and, and so this was all a bit of a surprise. So Steph didn't want to come in straight away, so she comes in a few hours later, and, uh, and they say, yeah, just take, you can take him home. Nobody checked me, no doctors, no nurses, nothing. We're getting on the elevator, and she said to me, I think you should go back and get that lure out of your arm anyway. So um, I go back, and I, I get the lure pulled out, and then we get sent home. They never asked me anything. I was bleeding profusely, and unbeknown to me, they'd cut my ureter, so my blood and my urine were mixing. So I get home in immense pain, and not as bad as kidney stone, but it was painful all the same. And uh, things go downhill. I started vomiting after a day and getting worse and worse, and then I get this immense pain in my head, uh, absolutely excruciating. It was, you know, it's hard to describe, but it felt like 10 times worse than a kidney stone. It was so bad. It felt like a truck had parked on my head. And I, I actually prayed. I, I said I was, just couldn't go to bed or anything. The pain was that bad. I prayed, God, just take my life. I can't stand this anymore. And it went on and on. So the next morning, um, we rang the hospital, couldn't get the doctor. So, and that, we got the head nurse. And she said, oh, it's probably just the flu stay in bed which turned out to be the wrong thing to say, but it, it was said, and, and it was meant to be, so I've got nothing against her at all. So I stayed in bed. The next morning, Steph's... Now, by this time, I can hardly move. I was that weak and tired, and Steph thought I was getting better because I was quieter. I wasn't moaning and grizzling at her as much. And um, so the midwife turns up for a check. She checks Steph and, and the baby, and then she says, oh, is Garth not well? And so Steph told, gave her a rundown. She said, look, I, I better have a look at him. Turned out my... Temperature was about 40-something, and my blood pressure was 45 over unreadable. Um, my skin was all grey and everything. So they admitted me, they rushed me back to hospital, and it turned out I had septicemia, you know, blood poisoning. And I, I, I went back into the hospital about five or six weeks after this all happened, saw the doctor had admitted me, and he said to me, he said, you know, you only had about an hour to live when you got in here. Um, we only just saved you. Uh, the midwife said to Stephanie, about three months after it all happened, when they, she saw it in the supermarket, she said, I was the sickest person that she had ever seen that survived, that lived. Um, my brother-in-law is a surgeon, and he had done a lot of his training at the Christchurch A&E and the resuscitation where I was. I wasn't in, I wasn't in intensive care, I was in resuscitation, try, just trying to keep me alive for a day. And um, he was in touch with the, the doctor that was looking after me and ringing him every sort of... 20 or 30 minutes or something from Australia and the doctor said to him look we're only giving him a 1% chance of survival so it was pretty dire 
So, I mean, even when I was admitted, they tried to get blood out of me, you know, as they do with the, the needles. They tried 28 times and could not get any blood out of me because all my veins had collapsed, my skin was grey, um, and, and your blood just starts working between your head and your, and your body, your heart. In the end, they cut my femoral artery, and they only even got three mils then um, and got the blood out so that they could do a test to see what it was. It wasn't quick enough, though, to determine what, so they just had to start injecting me with broad-spectrum antibiotics to try and kill the infection to keep me alive. So by this time, we'd been through six trials. My neck, Petra's, it was the birth of our daughter, the kidney stone, Steph's infection, Stephanie's swollen thyroid, and then the infection I got after the operation. Then this woman comes into the hospital to see me. Her name's Val Chandler. She says to me, oh, amazing thing happened, guys. She said, last night I was reading my Bible, and, and uh, I had it, I was, I think she said, open in John. And she said, I went to bed, and when I woke up in the morning, the page was open in Job. And she said, I didn't turn it, and nobody else is in the house. She's there by herself this day, because her husband, Steve, my cousin, is in Italy. And she says, but I read it, and I knew it was for you. And it says this, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles, and seven, no evil shall touch you. So here she's saying, look, six troubles, that's all you're going to get. We'd been through these six trials, and I sort of felt quite excited about this. But she goes home. She rings her husband, or actually, no, Steve rang up. He knew I was in hospital quite ill. And, and he says, how's Garth? And she says, oh, it's incredible. I got the scripture for him today. So she reads the scripture to Steve. And Steve turns around and said to her, that's the scripture I gave him four weeks ago. But at that time, I'd only been through two trials. So it was really amazing that God, outside of time, gave me that little prompt to show me, I've got you all sorted. Don't worry about it, you know. And then he come and... And, and reiterate it. I didn't want to know I had another four trials or three trials to go at that stage. But he, he was gracious enough to do this, which was absolutely incredible. So I was really excited because I thought, great, that's the end of it. That's our six trials. So anyway, I was lying in hospital. I've been now, I've been in there for five or six days and I, I'm in the ward. I'm in the ward now and they're saying to me, um, you know, I'll be, be going home soon. But I'm lying there and I'm thinking, why is this? Have I sinned? Have I done something wrong? You know, is there a curse? All this sort of stuff that you, you hear and I didn't know. And then God, just like he did when he said the power's about to go off, he came to me and he said, you're right in the palm of my hand to prove it, the fire alarm will go off at 2 o'clock, now, 2 a.m. Now, you don't need to believe this part because I've got no proof. I've got proof that the fire alarm went off, but I've got no proof that I heard this voice. It was for me personally. So I prepared my stuff. I was hardly able to get out of bed, but I got my slippers and my dressing gown and had them sitting on the nightstand beside the bed in this ward. I went to sleep, and sure enough, I woke up to this, this alarm going off, fire alarm going off at 2 o'clock in the morning, just through the whole hospital. Um, and I'm getting shaken by this nurse as it's happening. And the nurse said to me, Mr. Murray, we may have to evacuate. Could you get your stuff? Oh, you're already ready. Okay, I'll come and get you if we need to evacuate. I had a revival in that bed, in that ward with these other five old men all in there for kidney issues, um, right there by myself. It was incredible. God had spoken to me outside of time, so when I knew it was God, and, and told me something that was going to happen, and he did it to assure me that he was in control. So eventually I was sent home. I could hardly do anything. I, I couldn't watch a movie. And I'm talking now, I couldn't watch a movie for five or six years after this event. That's how hard it was. And even today, I still struggle. If I watch a movie, I watch it with Steph, and I'll, I've got to keep asking, who's that guy again? What's his name? And what happened? Why? I'll pause the movie all the time to try it because my short-term memory's been fried. 
I was sleeping over 22 hours a day. I was really disoriented. Stephanie can't even watch that movie, 50 First Dates. That's why I have notes. I, I, I'm, I've got to keep on track. So she's noticing significant changes in me. I couldn't walk far. I was very fatigued. My memory was playing up. I couldn't remember names or dates or people. I would have people, you know, I used to work only a period of months before. I was having these people from work see me, and I didn't know who they were. They would knock, you know, I'd see them in the mall or knock on our door, and I'd, they'd say, oh, how are you, Garth? And I'd sort of try and bluff it, but I had no idea who these people were. So I couldn't remember a lot of things. And now I was struggling with this. And over a six or seven months period, I, I was thinking I was starting to get physically a bit more fit. I was able to do things in the garden and, and around the house. Not much, but do little things. Um, but I wanted to get back to work. And I was telling everybody at church, oh, I'll be back at work soon. Yeah, it's great. But the thing is, when you've got a memory issue, you don't know you've got a memory issue. You know, if, if, if my kids do this to me all the time, and, and I, I, I get frustrated with it. My, my whole personality's changed because of it, but they'll say to me, Dad, you've watched that movie. I'll say, no, I've never watched that. Yeah, we sat with you and watched that a month ago. No, I never saw it. And I know that I know that I never saw it, but they know that they know they, that I saw it. So you don't know you've got problems. When you've got a memory issue, you don't know you've got problems. And I believed I was going back to work because I don't have any memory issue. People just keep talking about my memory. What a load of rubbish. My memory's fine. So anyway, they tried to convince me, but couldn't, it didn't work. So in the end, they said, well, I think, well, they did two things. One is they made me go and see the doctor, the, the AME who gave us the medical certificate back. He picked up on the memory issue and said, you've got to go and have some neuropsych testing. But before they did this, they actually came up with a plan, and we, they did it with the help of work, for me to sit what's called an APA, an Annual Proficiency Assessment. Um, now, I've done this, you do that every single year as an air traffic controller, of which I did 18 years, so, and I'd always got above 95. Um, they don't give you 100, it's just the way they are. And uh, I'd always got above 95. So I did this APA only a few months after I'd last done one, and I got 5%. And that's when I knew there was a bit of a problem. So I got sent to, to have this neuropsych testing, and they discovered something quite horrific. They discovered that your IQ's got six parts. Five of mine are fine still, one part is not. And they said I had the memory of a 92-year-old with the onset of Alzheimer's. So uh, things weren't going too well. So they said, look, that doesn't mean you'll lose your job yet. We've got to retest you in six months or a year. So. They organised that. I'm living now on an insurance policy uh, for, for work. So then after six months or whatever it was, they retest me. And sure enough, the result was only a 2% improvement. Um, and so they, my work said, no, look, I'm sorry, but you can't have a medical, so we, we don't need to employ you. So I lost my job. I was no longer an air traffic controller. The insurance ran out quite soon after that. Um, and just like anybody else, we'd shifted from Auckland with a good income and a bit of money and bought a home that was, you know, as much as we could afford at the time. Didn't take long before we couldn't afford the mortgage. I'd gone from uh, well over three figures to $18,000 a year on a sickness benefit because I couldn't work. I tried working. I, um, <laughs> I, I'd la learned how to lay bricks when I was in Auckland when we built this house from Australia. Uh, and it was great. I had a guy, bricklayer come in and taught me how to do it, and I was actually reasonably good at it. So I said, oh, I can lay bricks. So I got this job laying bricks. So first day I get along there, and I forgot my tools. So I had to drive home and 16 kilometres, bring my tools back, start laying the bricks. 
get the wall up, all the way up. Then I remembered I hadn't put the cement in the mortar and the wall fell down. So I pulled the wall to bits, pulled all the bricks off, re got all the mortar and put it back in the concrete mixer and remade it all and put the, 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 um, the cement in and remade the wall. And then I realised I hadn't put the colour in the mortar. So the next day I had to pull the whole wall to bits, this time already getting dry. Um, I forgot my wheelbarrow that day. It just got worse and worse. The, the, the guy said he wouldn't employ me again. <laughs> so couldn't lay bricks. Tried making furniture, couldn't do that. Nothing was working. So the bank foreclosed on our mortgage. We couldn't pay it. So our house is going on the market now because we can no longer pay our debt. Stephanie and I are really starting to struggle in our relationship with each other, mainly because I don't know what's going on. My head was just in a complete different space. I couldn't tell you. I didn't know. You know, I, I struggled with what, what day it was, what time of day it was, who was doing what. I, I couldn't remember anything. So she starts getting counselling and is so stressed that, you know, and she's going to talk about that in a little minute, that, you know, I think we're close to separating. My children stopped talking to me. They, they, they would be, um, they'd say, Dad, I'm just going down to John's place. I'll be back in three hours. And as they're walking out the door, I'd say, where are you going? I just told you 10 minutes ago. So they stopped talking to me. After you do this 100 times, they just start ignoring you. Why tell Dad? He's just not going to know anyway. So... They stopped talking to me. My children sort of. St I started to become gradually excluded from the life of my children to the point that I was felt quite alienated and quite alone in this little bubble of just forgetfulness and stupidity. Um, we then ran it ran out of money. The insurance stopped, and we had no way to pay for food. So we started to rely on the the gifts of others. I couldn't work. I couldn't do anything. So the, hopefully, when the house sells, everything will be fine. Then my dad, who knew of the issues that Stephanie and I were having, um, thought I've got to get Garth away from her for a while, get her, give her a break. So they live in Australia. He was he had been he was going over to the Philippines on a on a, a speaking trip. He's a, a minister as well at the time, and he said, "I want you, want you to come, Garth." I said, "No," because I I couldn't go through an airport without getting lost. I I can't remember the last direction I turned. So um, until I got a GPS or a phone that had it. Uh, I couldn't drive anywhere. I would drive into town and ring Stephanie up in tears saying, I don't know how to get home. I don't know where. I, so I stopped driving. And for the first four or five years after the event, Stephanie just about did all the driving. It wasn't until I learnt, I got a speech therapist and I got all these aids that helped me actually get back on track. So anyway, I said no, but eventually everybody talked me into it and I went over to the Philippines. My dad's ministering this one day, but then he got sick. He got he had a salad that made him sick. So I... I um, a good healthy eater, wasn't eating any salads, because uh, they're dangerous, you know, and and, um, <laughs> and I got, I didn't get sick. So so they said to me, well, you, your dad can't speak, so you've got to speak today, you've got to preach today. So I start, I sort of agreed reluctantly to take the message this morning, and I said to them, if I'm going to speak, I need a whiteboard, because my memory's so bad, I'll, I'll lose track of where I actually am. So I... Uh, started speaking and they wanted me to keep going. You go, these people just, I don't know how they do it. They sit there for hours just going and going. And I'd preach a message. They said, keep going, do another one, do another one. You know? But anyway, I sat down eventually and I looked up and it's when I realised, I saw the whiteboard because I'd written something quite remarkable. I had written the prayer that I prayed in Auckland. Lord, I give you my wife, I give you my children, I give you my home, I give you my job, I give you my money. To this point, my relationship with my wife was collapsing. My children had excluded me from their lives. 
Our home was on a mortgagee sale. I'd lost my job. We had absolutely no money. We'd used up all our superannuation paying the mortgage, um, eating, feeding a family of seven. Things were pretty dire. But as soon as I saw it, I realized this is the prayer I prayed. This is God's work. And I was really excited. So I get home and I, I'm from the Philippines and I tell Stephanie all about it. I, I, I can't go into many details because I don't have the time, but I was really excited. God, I, I had decided to surrender and give God everything. And God was so good about it, he took it all. <laughs> I had nothing. He, he had tested my commitment to surrender. And, you know, God didn't need my stuff. He didn't need my house or my money or my job or anything. He wanted me to know what surrender meant to me. And he taught me that in that time. He taught me what was important in my life as well. So I tried, as I said, to work, and I couldn't. Couldn't bricklay, couldn't build furniture, couldn't do any of those things. Um, and then one night I had a dream. Now, I was dreaming a lot. <laughs> the doctors... The doctors, when, they, when I did all this neuro testing, this psych testing, and they said, do you see things? And I said, well, yeah, yeah. One day I was sitting at home and I saw this being that I believe was an angel just walk past our window, just a white, a man, big, tall man in white, just walked past, turned to me and smiled and kept walking. And I ran out, couldn't see them, don't know where they went. And I said about this and they thought, well, he's, so they sent me off to a psychiatrist. And because um, I was very honest, I was trying to be honest about everything. And they sent me off to a psychiatrist and they checked me out and said, no, there's nothing wrong. He hasn't got bipolar. He's not schizophrenic. He's not anything like that. What he's telling you, he genuinely believes. And, and so they looked into it and they discovered that they, they said, look, you've broken down part of your mind that the conscious and the unconscious. So you, you actually dream more because a lot of them are actually during waking hours. So anyway, I had this dream. In the first dream, I saw myself making a speaker. Now, I, don't, I, I was an air traffic control, uh, aircraft engineer then an air traffic controller. I knew nothing about speakers, but I saw myself making it. So I dived out of bed, wrote it all down, wrote the dimensions. I've still got the original drawing. And I, I proceeded to build it over six months with the help of my boys. Now, we then sent it away for testing. And this company had been testing speakers for 25 years, and they said, in 25 years, we've never seen anything perform like this. Now, I won't tell you why, but there's a whole lot of reasons why. Then I had a second dream, and in the second dream I saw myself building a bigger speaker and I saw the name Theophany. I had no idea what Theophany meant. I now know it's a word that the Catholics use a bit, but I had no idea what it meant or anything, but I just thought it was powerful and it was in my dream. So I said to a few friends at church, what do you think about this for a name of the business? A business, you know, if I start making speakers. And they said, oh, it sounds kind of musical, like symphony and stuff, so we just, I just named it Theophany. It wasn't until two years later when we were getting a review in a magazine and they actually told us what the word means. The, the word literally means, Theo means God, and Phine means to manifest. When you break it down in the Strongs, God, it says, is love, and to manifest or to speak out, or speakers. So the word literally means love speakers, theophany, which was just miraculous. I just had no idea, but just once again, God showing his hands in it all. Then I had, so that we did that, and then I had a third dream where I saw this amazing product, we put, putting this product inside. I, I'll, I'll tell you, this was really incredible. I said to Seth, have I ever been in this store? And she said, no, I don't think so. So I said, well, listen, I've had this dream. I went into the store, I turned left, I picked this blue product off the shelf, I paid $6 for it. We had no money at this stage. So Stephanie raided, I said, 
you know, we should go and have a look at this because I took it home and put it inside a speaker. So we raided one of our son's money boxes to get $6 in coins and we went into this car that my brother-in-law had paid for me graciously because I should tell you that story. My, I'll, I'll finish this one first. We went into this um, store, sure enough, turned left, got this product, it was right where I said it would be, got it off the shelf, paid the money for it and it was exactly <clears throat> the money that I said. So we put that inside a speaker and, we f and, and had it tested and they said, look, you've eliminated this resonance that all speakers have, which is what makes the sound more real. So I just knew God was in, in, in control. What I was going to say about the car was, at this time, our cars started breaking down and I had always fixed our cars. I'd, as an aircraft engineer, I'd learned how to do mechanical stuff. And so I'd, I'd fix cars. So I pulled the car to bits. It blew to head, head gas. So I pulled the car to bits to fix it all and suddenly realised I forgot where everything went. I couldn't remember what all the parts, all the nuts and the bolts and all these pieces, which I'd always done all my life with no issues at all. So I put it back together as best I could, turned it on and completely destroyed the motor. Um, $7,000 worth, just like that. And so, I mean, I'm so stupid. I, I would be on the lawnmower and then I'd need to go to the toilet. So, or the phone would ring or something or somebody would call me. So I'd get off the lawnmower, go inside and Stephanie would come and wake me up off the couch four hours later saying, why is the lawnmower running on the front lawn? Um, oh, oh, I don't know. Was I mowing the lawns, you know? Um, I cooked that as well because I left it running at one time too many and it blew up. So I destroyed everything. She, she made, she said, I blew up our, our swimming pool filter, the whole lot of it all gone. House is now getting sold, got nothing. Then I have this dream and start building these speakers to the point that within three years, we were the 15th biggest exporter in Canterbury. That's how miraculous the story of business, I don't want to tell you all about our business today, I'm not here to sell speakers, but God has looked after us. Our business is absolutely thriving. So everything got turned around. All of a sudden now, I paid off our house. We paid it off completely. We... Um, my money problems were gone. The business is thriving. I, I managed to rebuild with the help of a, an amazing speech therapist who I'm going to tell you about right now. This young lady was my speech therapist for three years. Now, before I got a speech therapist, I didn't even know what a speech therapist was. What time do I... Okay, two minutes, okay. Uh, I didn't even know what a speech therapist was. She... I'm out in my workshop and this light came into the room and it said, you're, about to, you're going to get a speech therapist. She's a young Christian lady and she needs your help more than you need hers. So I wrote it on a bit of wood, put it up on the shelf and left it there. And anyway, I'm, I'm uh, working away. Three years later, the business is starting to grow. I've employed this young guy. We're moving into a new building. We're no longer in my little workshop. And I get this ring from this lady who's now been my speech therapist two or three years, and she rings me up in tears. She said, I need to come and see you. There's something wrong. She said, she turns up and she said, I've just been diagnosed with diabetes and hepatitis C. And the doctor said, I'll never have children. Now, this young guy who's employed by me says, what's this? Now, I'd forgot completely about it. He pulls out this bit of wood. I mean, I don't believe in coincidence. This is God all at the same time. Why would he be doing this? And the, the same time this young lady is, you know, sick. And it says, you're going to get a speech therapist. She's a young Christian lady. needs your help more than hers. And I said, I don't know what this is about, Sarah, but I'm going to pray for you. She, I prayed for her and just said, God, we just want your will in Sarah's life. She goes 
leaves the place, still very down, rings me up a week later and says, I've got to come back and see you. She says, I've just been back to the doctor. I'm completely well. No diabetes, no hepatitis. She, I'm proud to say, she had her first child about 18 months ago. So I, I felt, I'm, I, I love that I'm a small part of that. Then we were approached... We've had five offers to make our story into a movie. We've chosen not to do it. One of them was really quite funny because um, I get this ring and I'm in the workshop and it was the BBC in England saying, listen, we've heard your story. We would like to make it into a movie, but I've got a board and they've said, look, hold off, hold off. This, this is not the end of the story. And it's not. We're still seeing amazing things, so we're holding out. But we get this guy wants to write the book. So this man, Jim Hopkins, you may have not, may known him, he comes to me and he's got a publisher in Australia, wants to write the book, but it's, they start doing it, but it's very new agey and it's not what I wanted. And I prayed about it and I felt God said, no, I want you to write the book. So Steph, I start writing this book all about this, this story. Now I said to you, it gets good, it's getting real good now. Um, so I start to write this book. My uncle was 84 years old and he's on his deathbed. He's got a brain tumour. I feel I'm supposed to go out and see him. I talk to Steph, we both decide she more encourages me to go out. I'd change my mind. Anyway, we'd get out there. Um, we're told, I ring the family and I say, look, he hasn't spoken for two weeks. The doctor said he'll be dead by Tuesday. But I felt to go and see him anyway, or Steph felt, so I let, followed her leading. God was speaking to her. So we get out there, and I walk into the room, and he said, Garth, it's so good to see you. God told me you'd come. He was talking as clear as any young man I've ever heard. I'm surprised for a start. He said, I read the review of your book in the paper on Thursday. Now, there had been no review. He he's described so accurately in his mind this review on our books. They loved it, and he talked all about it, which is really interesting because there was no review. I hadn't even had the book printed. Then he's an old man again, and he starts mumbling, and we don't know what he's saying, and he's falling out of his chair. And then he pops up, oh, Garth, it's so good to see you. God told me you'd come. I read your book. Now, this was really amazing. This is when I started to get quite emotional because he told me how many pages it had. He told me the color of the cover. He told me the title of the book. He told me excerpts from the book. He didn't even know I was writing a book. And not only that, the doctor said he couldn't speak. Then he stops and then he goes, and this goes on for 20 minutes and he keeps prophesying over our life, not knowing he's prophesying. He just thinks he's talking about events to come. He tells us this one story. He said, what about that guy, Garth, in America? And he, had the, he bought the book. It's selling well in America. He said he bought the book and he sat it on the coffee table and he left it there for four months. He couldn't bring himself to read it. Then one day he finally picks it up and reads the book and his whole family came to the Lord because of it. He said everywhere you spoke, people gave their heart to the Lord. This is my uncle. I need to get my wife up. Um, so everything turned around. Everything we lost... We got back. Not just what we had originally, but so much more. I would say this, my relationship with Steph is so much better. It's double or triple or more as good as what it was. But I recognize that not everybody can come to this like I did. And we struggle with surrender. We struggle with the, the change and the trial and everything. And Stephanie was having a real struggle. And I think it's best if she just explained a little bit how she went through it. Hi, I'm, I'm Steph, and I just want to say that uh, it was really difficult for me because um, I sort of like to be in control of, you know, my situation. I, I feel as if I'm quite capable, and two to three years after Garth's brain injury, and I sort of delineate my life as pre-brain injury and post-brain injury, but it's probably more 
pre-surrender and post-surrender. And um, so two years in, and um, I'm actually, uh, our life is a mess. I'm trying to fix us. I'm trying to fix the children. Um, there was money issues. There was house issues. I never tried to fix the car. But, um, you know, and it, and it just, you, can ta you go for so long and you can take so much and then you come to a tipping point and um, you just can't take it anymore. And I actually went out and did a bit of gardening and I quite like to be, outside because I sort of get away from the seven children inside and Garth and um, and we've we've got a big you know a few acres so I didn't actually know Garth was near me but I just it was the first time sort of two to three years later that I actually I suppose you'd call it I grieved and I just started crying and quite uncontrollably uncontrollably and I was just sobbing and I and um, just in the dirt and the muck and Garth came up behind me and he said, Steph, he said, Steph, what's the matter? And I just said, I can't take it anymore. I, I can't do it anymore. And, um, you know, we've been married for nearly 31 years and man, it irks me when my husband's right. But, you know, he said, this is what he said, and I knew he was right. He said, Steph, he said, that's the problem. He said, God doesn't want you to fix it. He wants you to give it over to him so he can fix it. And... I must say that, you know, before Garth got sick, um, we were very ordinary. We slightly overshot the 2.4 children, but we were just very, very ordinary. And if I, I sort of describe it to people that if our life was in a cardboard box, um, I loved my life. I was very content. And my favourite scripture is godliness with contentment is great gain. You know, I was very, very satisfied. I, I didn't want anything else, I didn't want more, I didn't want less, I, I was just very, very satisfied. And it was as if uh, our lovely little ordinary life was in a cardboard box and somebody had picked up that box and shaken it, we're from Christchurch so not a literal, literal shake, but someone had shaken that box and all the, all the bits inside had got jumbled and then they had tipped the box upside down. So I had spent the next two to three years trying to pick up each little piece and putting it back in the box, resembling what it was prior to all this going on. And it wasn't easy. And I think that's the problem is when we want to put it back in the box how it was, we actually put God in the box. You know, we limit, we limit what we think is right for us. And that's the big thing about surrender is when you give it over, um, you don't have control of that little box or that little life. And the outcome of our life is so much more than I ever could imagine because I would have wanted to fix everything the way it was before and that's not you know God's plan and if there's one thing I can do is encourage you today is is just surrender everything you know God doesn't want a little bit it's easy to give a, a little bit because the first little bit is easy but he wants total surrender and you know my my experience of surrender wasn't easy it wasn't pretty there was a lot of noise, there was tears, there was dirt, there was slobber, there was, you know, it just wasn't pretty. But it's, it's not easy, but I do encourage you to give everything you have to God. And as soon as I did that, the, the burden had just lifted, there was a liberty, there was a freedom, there was so much joy. And, you know, once you do it, you stop focusing on the destination, but the, and the journey is just incredible, and you will be significant.
So while you've heard, you know, the, some things that may be a little bit of a challenge, a bit depressing, the end result is incredible. My life is so much richer for it. I, I, I love my life more. I love spending time with my family. I feel like I'm closer to Jesus now than I've ever been. The Holy Spirit is constantly with me every day. I see his hand work in my life all because I gave him everything. He's got everything. now. He could take the business off to me tomorrow. He could take anything off me. It's his choice. I'm at peace with that because I've been to the bottom and I've seen the power of his anointing. I'm challenging you today. I know some of you will be facing trials. I know some of you will be even struggling with letting go. You don't want to do it. You, you want to control things. You want it to be just the way you want it to be. But I am living proof that the way I wanted it wasn't the best way. I am so much more. The joy I experience daily now is so much greater than before. I'm encouraging you, it may look like you've got the best answers to all situations and you want to hold the reins and you want to control it. I'm saying, let go. If you can learn to surrender and give it all to God, the result is incredible. Now, we will always have trials in our life. We'll always have tribulations and ups and downs and joys and, and that. But when you have done this and you realize it's out of your control, I can promise they become so much easier. I have faced bankruptcy. I have faced loss of people, loss of family, friends. I have faced death. I know what the worst can be. And I'm telling you now, nothing matters. None of that matters now because of what God has restored to me. It is absolutely incredible. I could stand here for hours and keep telling you the amazing good things. I just don't have time to keep telling you those. He is, he's, he's come and spoken and, and used me to save like the life of my son. That's another story, but just physically stopped him from being killed on a mountain. Today, if you're struggling, it's time to let go. It's time to let God take over. It's as simple as that. It's just saying, God, you've got to deal with this. All you have to do is be the best person you can be. Just do what you do well and let God. Because you don't have to make things happen anymore. It's so much freedom in living like this. He does it all. If he, I just now, I, I try to be the best dad, the best speaker builder, the best guitar player. I'm not that good at that, but the best whatever. I try to be the best I can. If God wants me to do something, he comes on the scene and does it. He miraculously makes things happen. If you want prayer today to help you through this journey, I'm happy to stay behind and there's other people that come forward and pray with you, but I'm challenging you. It's time. Could the musicians come forward? It's time to actually let go.